0: And now, the reading of the scripture. Our reading today is from Matthew, chapter 6, verses 7 to 18. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then, like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites.
1: We are facing one of those profound moments in the life of our culture, and I would argue in the life of the Christian church in North America. The events of the last few weeks have shocked us, saddened us, enraged us, discouraged us, and made many people wonder what have we created? And I actually choose those words carefully because we need to confront just this question at just this moment what world have we created? For this culture that we have, embedded with racism and injustice as it is, shot through with anger and demonizing polarization of people who don't look like you or think like you, is our creation, yours, mine, and the people who came before us. We really have nowhere to go but to the mirror to see who's responsible for this. There's no one else to point fingers at. We cannot point it at God because our secular culture has self-consciously stopped believing in God for many years. And as we will see when we look at what God says, God has spoken on race issues of race and injustice and spoken clearly. He is against them. This is our mess. This is our doing. We have done this. And so Somehow we've hidden the ugliness of this truth from ourselves, but we need to confront this squarely. By our active participation or our passive acceptance of a culture that daily puts oppression in the face of marginalized people, black people in particular at this moment, and of sinful suspicion on people who are people of color, we have to say we need a different answer. And today we're looking again at our second week of prayer. And when these events began to unfold, I began to wonder. I was tempted to change the scripture reading and just deal with the issue of racism and injustice. But I didn't. A couple of reasons. Firstly, I think that in this moment, there is no better place to go than to the Lord. And thus to His prayer to find solutions for our present darkness. And secondly, I think in the Lord's Prayer, properly understood, there is power indeed to help bring about real transforming change in the way we think, act, and impact our culture. There's no better place to go, and there's no greater power to receive. We're going to look at those two. No better place to go, no greater power to receive, and I think they're both in the Lord's Prayer. No better place to go. As I mentioned last week, we'll be focusing mainly on the last three prayers of the Lord's Prayer. But before we do that, we just have to understand the whole. We remember the first three petitions, as I said last week, Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. All three of them qualified by the phrase, On earth as it is in heaven. These three phrases give us the overall context of the whole prayer. And in these three three praises, we see no better place to go. We go to God himself, the one who rules in heaven, who is our father, to ask him to help make real on earth what is already real in heaven, where his reign and his rule is perfect and his will is done without question and his name is hallowed without qualification. When you think about that, you begin to realize how powerful this prayer can be because who it is we're going to. So let's just take a moment right now and take a kind of a virtual tour. Of this place that we call heaven for those of you who are new to christianity heaven is not our final home it's a temporary resting place for those who've died and believe in god and and jesus heaven is not physical in the same way as earth and our universe is physical to us it is physical there are angelic beings there god is really present. it's a strange and wondrous world though and if you were there you would see in that world a throne and sitting on the throne would be a being of such pure brilliance, such holy brightness. We we couldn't with our eyes pierce it. That is the Ancient of Days. That is God Almighty on the throne. But sitting beside him, we would see something that shocked us because we would see an actual human body, the only actual human body presently existing in heaven. And that is the body of the Jewish man Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, declared to actually be God's Son, who had come in human form and was raised in human form. And then you would listen to the voices in heaven. And you would hear songs of praise and petitions of how long, O Lord, coming from people, still people, maybe not with their bodies, but still people. And you would hear languages you'd never heard, that you have not even known existed on this earth. You would have realized almost immediately that these People, these souls in these languages represent every shade of skin color, every ethnicity and mixture of ethnicity that you could ever imagine. Every tribe, every tongue, every skin color being represented in these voices you are hearing if you were in heaven right now. What a tour! Well, let's take a second tour because this heaven is one day going to come to earth and become the new heaven and new earth. So let's take a second tour of our final future destiny, what Jesus promises will happen when this world of history is wound up. And we will see each other. We will actually get resurrection bodies. There will be real, physical new heaven and new earth. And we will be able to see each other, not just here. And in this tour, I want you to see as well as here and see all the different tribes and all the different tongues represented. And you will see in this, this new Jerusalem, as Revelation 20 calls it, no more tears, no more evil, no more crying, no more death, no more wrong, no more sin, and every single kind of person, of every single ability and disability, of every skin color, ethnic origin, of every tribe and tongue represented there. All equal in the eyes of God. You see, that tour tells us that the beginning, the end, and the middle of who we are was meant to be racism free. You see, on earth, as it is in heaven, is meant to say, that which was when we were created. Adam and Eve, probably people of color, uh, in in the Babylonian headwaters, that's where uh, humanity, it says, began. Uh, Anthropologists have another uh, guess. They, They guess Africa either way. People of color go back to the moment of creation when all of humanity was given instructions in the garden, and you will hear these words, let us make humanity in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. And then it says, so God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made us in his image. Think about that for a moment. We look at the diversity of humans, uh, in the way we're shaped, in the gifts we're given and the different abilities and, and languages and diversity of taste that we have, you see that diversity is an essential part of our humanity as well as an essential unity. And that that fits the nature of God who made us in his image. He is one God, but he is three distinct persons. Diversity and unity and essential equality of majesty and glory. So it is with God, so it is God and meant to be for us. Take the tour of how he created us. Understand what heaven is like now and what the future will be, and you see that God is relentlessly a God who is longing for justice and equality, made us to be that way, will make us to be that way, and by the way, sent his son to help get us there. Therefore, we are praying to an all-powerful God, fully committed to implement pure justice, colorblind harmony for the humans, all humans who will come to him. Now, I just want to take a moment and contrast that with our culture's response to where we can go to end our present division and racism. If we don't have this kind of God, what, what do we have to fall back on? Our own learning our own development, our own technological innovation. What tools of humanity have you seen develop that have actually undone racism? I submit to you, we don't have any tools that we've seen. Left to our own devices, look at the history of humanity, not not just Caucasian history, look at the history of all races for all times. And racism is embedded within the history of all humanity since the dawn of our race. Have the new technologies helped? Now, recent studies are showing that, that new technologies, particularly social media, all they're doing is crystallizing and accentuating the polarization that already exists. They're not breaking it down. They're hardening these issues. So for those of us out there longing to an end to racism, whom or what are you going to? And hoping in that we'll have the power to actually begin to really break its power we got to look in the mirror squarely and say, there's nothing in me, there's nothing in us that history has shown to be sufficiently powerful to remove it from my culture or any other culture. Only God has that kind of power, and only God seems to have that relentless desire to stamp out injustice and racism. The only hope for a real, lasting, transforming end to the sin of racism is God. There's no better place to go. And the Lord's prayer shows us where to go. Now, secondly, there's no greater power. I said last week we would focus this week on the last three petitions, so let's do that now. And let's take this issue of racism and show how real power is offered and exemplified and even embedded and assumed inside these prayers, power that the gospel gives to us. So, Hear these three prayers. We're going to break them down fairly quickly. Firstly, give us this day our daily bread. What a wonderful, simple prayer. This prayer from Jesus says many things. It says you can pray for your everyday physical needs. Bread to the original hearers was kind of an umbrella term, a symbolic term that meant your daily physical needs. It was, it was a metaphor and had very deep universal meaning. It's an invitation for us to go to God with everything that we need, even our concrete physical needs. But actually embedded in this prayer is a great deal more because, because in the original grammar, this prayer says, God, give to me my daily need for tomorrow, what I need to get through tomorrow. Give me the physical necessities to live out tomorrow well, to to hallow your name well, to help bring in your kingdom a little bit more, to help have your will be done on earth a little bit more. Give me what I need for that. You hear that? In, in, In that prayer is embedded a freedom from the idol of greed. This prayer can only be prayed by a people who've been transformed so that they are free of that primal human nature to worship money and the things that money can give you. To be so satisfied in God and what He has given us that we no longer crave financial power, ability, and security. You see like the Israelites going out every morning to get their their manna from heaven, which they had to do every day in the 40-year wanderings through the desert and the wilderness. And this prayer is meant to bring that moment to mind. This prayer is of someone wandering in a world that's not their home, that they haven't made their home. And so they don't need to extract power and financial security from that home. And they're free from the idol of greed. This prayer can be prayed only by those who have had the power of greed broken in their lives. They don't need wealth and material security to make them feel whole. That's where this prayer intersects with the idea of justice and racism. And because there are there, one of, and there are many, one of the roots of racism is Greed. There are many, but history shows us that people exploit other people for personal economic gain. So people create reasons in their hearts and minds to justify what they know to be wrong so that they can sustain predatory economic behavior that benefits them at the expense of others. And one of those justifications is racism. They deserve to be treated that way. There was a seminal article in The Atlantic in 2014 by Tanahisi Coates, and in it, the connection between greed greed and racism was made visceral and compelling. He focused on real estate ownership in the Chicago suburb of North Lonsdale, and Coates painstakingly depicted how banks, for their own financial growth, refused to grant mortgages to black people in post-World War II Chicago area. They were afraid of blacks' inability to pay their mortgages. So then a government mortgage system was created. The, the, the Federal Housing Administration created a way to insure mortgages to allow people to get mortgages. They would insure it. But guess what they did? Because they wanted to be paid back and not lose out on this insurance. They rated neighborhoods. Red-rated neighborhoods didn't qualify for the insurance. Guess what rating black neighborhoods got? red, so they couldn't get insurance, so they couldn't get mortgages. The government conspiring with the banks had created an architecture where blacks couldn't get mortgages. So what happened? A contract system, a a hybrid mortgage system was allowed and white wealthy financiers rushed into that gray zone and started creating predatory mortgages that they gave to black people with, with covenants that, bl- that the black community could not fulfill. And so they would just give them a mortgage, let them move in. Two years later, force a foreclosure because they couldn't abide by the covenants. Rinse and repeat. Bring someone else in, get, give them the money, get big deposits, take the deposits, get rid of them. You see, greed from the banks fear of losing money from government agencies, predatory practices by white financiers, they all uh, coalesced together in Chicago after World War II to create a cycle of poverty for black families. Greed did not create the racism, but greed gave it strength, built roots for a system of injustice. Greed. Greed is cut to the core by this prayer. When you pray, give me this day, my daily bread, you are saying, I'm free from the reign of greed. I don't need to exploit people to build my financial empire. I've already gained freedom from the grips of greed. And so one part of the support system of racism is already being broken if you can pray this prayer. And when you pray this prayer, the Spirit works to answer this prayer to free us more and more from the power of money. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. He said to his culture, money is your primary idol. And in in, in this prayer, greed, which fuels so many sins, so many injustices, including racism, begins to lose its grip on you and its ability to fuel these other sins. And so as the gospel weaves more deeply into us and others and our society, it can actually break its grip on the culture and begin to break the power of greed to fuel racism, as it has done for so many centuries. Give us this day our daily bread. What about forgive us our trespasses? Okay, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. A very puzzling statement. Why? Because it sounds like Jesus is saying, my forgiveness of you is contingent upon your forgiving others. And But the problem is the rest of Jesus teachings, the apostles' teachings, is that we're forgiven by God on the basis of simply trusting in Jesus. That's all it takes. For by grace you've been saved through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. No, forgiving others is not the basis for God forgiving us. Rather, God's creating this parallelism, I think, to say in the same way That we forgive others, we want God to forgive us. So then let's probe that. What does that mean? Doesn't God forgive us differently than we forgive others? Yes and no. Yes, because God is different from us. He's sinless. He's perfect. He forgives us purely on the basis of grace and his love. But there's a way in which God is saying his dynamic with us and our dynamic with others should have a parallelism. And I think it's this way. When we forgive others, this is what we require. And this is what the gospel tells us we should require. We want others to come to us. Own their sin specifically, name it. Own their sin as a violation of their, their obligation to love us. Commit to changing and then asking for forgiveness. These four elements are what we expect. The Bible doesn't talk about apologizing. The gospel talks about confessing and receiving forgiveness. That's what forgiveness requires. That owning specifically, calling it a violation of love, showing how you would change and committing to change, and then asking for forgiveness. This, Jesus teaches us, is how we're to forgive others. And this is how we're called to be forgiven by God, by coming to Him, owning our sins specifically, owning it as a violation of His call to love Him perfectly and to love others as we love ourselves. To commit to acting differently from now on in word, deed, and mind. And then to asking for forgiveness. That's how we're to ask God for forgiveness. The way we expect others to ask us. And in this present case, let's apply this now to this moment we're in. In this case of racism, I think this would help both sides of the conversation. Many uh, people of the majority culture, many white people think, I'm not personally racist. And therefore, I've not failed any standard of racism. I have nothing to repent of. To ask me to repent is unfair. And up to a point, there's truth to that. But think of the analogy again, because when people of color hear that, they repeat, and they have said to me, when I've said that to them, they've said these words. I don't think you've fully repented yet of the racism that you owe as a good neighbor. Because a good neighbor who loves their neighbor as their self treats themselves as a neighbor. An example I saw in my reading this week is if you're in a neighborhood and you see people lighting a house in your neighborhood on fire and you say, well, I'm not going to stop it. But I'm not setting the fire, so I'm not guilty of arson, so I'm not responsible or in any way implicated by the arson that's happening in my neighborhood. Your neighbors have a right to say to you, no, 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 part of being a neighbor who loves a neighbor is calling out and protecting the neighborhood from that kind of predatory, wrong, unjust, evil behavior. And that lesson has sunk home to me in the past few weeks. I have not stood as a neighbor who is called to love my neighbors and my neighborhood, I have not stood against the sin of people who've been setting fire to the houses and the families and the living of people of color and black people in particular. I may not have practiced racism in my life as I have seen it, but I've also not helped free my neighborhood of it. And that, is a violation of the law I have, the the command Jesus gave me to love my neighbor as myself. And I need to confess that sin. Many of us need to confess that sin, not just of not being racist, but of not helping to keep our neighborhood, our city, our culture free of racism. And we need to learn to repent of that sin before we can really be forgiven of that sin by those who are experiencing the racism that we have abetted and aided by our silence, and even by God. I think we need to learn to pray this prayer more powerfully and fully. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This one, again, is hard to understand because the Bible says clearly, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we need to understand what's probably going on here. The Bible does not contradict himself. R.T. France, perhaps the most respected English-speaking scholar on the book of Matthew, translates the word evil differently. He sees the the, the 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 program the the pronoun the the evil or the evil one in the original Greek grammar to refer to the devil. And R. T. France and I agree with him and others thinks this makes sense of the whole phrase. Uh, deliver us not from the temptations you bring, but the temptations the evil one brings. The one who tempted Adam into sin in the garden. The one who tempts everyone and who is extraordinarily effective at deceiving people and tempting people to sin, including by tempting them to racism. We see three perspectives in life. Just quickly, these three perspectives before I get back to this. We see three beautiful perspectives on life that God gives us to pray for. Pray for your daily physical needs, your daily bread pray for your your relational needs how to confess and give and grant forgiveness relationally both to God and to others and spiritually protect us from the temptations that come from the evil and this is a prayer of spiritual protection it's not to imply that God will tempt us but that the devil will regularly tempt us and to recognize the weakness of our own hearts, how prone we can be to those kinds of temptation. And here is where I think the, the deepest root of racism intersects with this prayer in this way, because the deepest root of all sin, theologically the root sin of which pride is founded upon, is pride of which racism is founded upon, excuse me, is pride. It is pride that caused Adam and Eve to exalt themselves to want to be equal with God. It is pride that the devil preyed upon that got them to eat the forbidden fruit and be alienated from God. It is pride that divides us from one another as individuals and as races. It is pride that is the root of racism. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity, We now come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, they are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. The other vices are competitive only, uh, so to speak, he says, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next person. Do you hear him? It is pride that makes us want to exalt ourselves above others as individuals and as races. So when we pray against the temptations of the devil, we must go to the very root, the very sin nature in us that the devil loves to use most often. Pride. And so when we pray this prayer, it leads us to unmask the deep issues of pride that lead to the deep issues of racism because racism is an expression of pride. It is the ugly, demonic expression of pride expressed in how we divide ourselves, one race from another. My pride is my biggest problem. It is my deepest wound. It is my strongest cancer. It's my most invisible virus. And so it is yours. To pray the Lord's Prayer in its fullness is to start with let your name be hallowed and to finish with protect me from the temptation of pride. It's to start with my loving God, the Father of all, and ends with protect me from the anti-God, the demon, the devil as my tempter. Therefore, the Lord's Prayer... Is a mighty weapon in the life of a believer for prevailing power over sin, including sins as deep as racism, even sins as deep as pride. And the true power of of this prayer comes in the one who taught it to us because he's the one who lived it and he's the one who prayed it. He prayed, Give me, give us this day our daily bread, and he became the one. prayed this in his whole life. He lived day by day with just enough food and just enough clothing. And he lived with just enough financial means to be able to live the perfect life of righteousness and then to go and die on the cross. He prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. The one who had become our daily bread became the one who poured out his blood to become our cup that we drink, the cup of forgiveness. The one who was tempted by the devil for 40 days and then tempted again in the garden became the one who undid the sin of the garden, Adam's sin of pride, and undid the sin of Israel, Israel's sin of unbelief in the desert, and became the one for us who purchased our full forgiveness and the full pleasure of God in the life that Jesus lived for us. Therein is the power to live a life free of racism and the power to stand against it and to help transform our city, our culture, and our hearts from it. Let us learn to pray the Lord's Prayer in His power. And let His Spirit transform us into His likeness for His glory and the blessing of our city. Let's pray. Father, I thank You and praise You. Come now by Your Spirit and let this prayer come to life in us. That it may help us to root out sins as deep as pride, sins as demonic as racism. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.